Broadcasting live to the world now, it's Sheila Zelensky. This is a very sinister Luciferian eugenics plan. These spineless weasels preach what people want to hear. They replace repentance with dreams of the good life. Mindless minions. Dying daily, taking up your cross, suffering and sacrificing have been superseded with name it and claim it. And as dark as I know it looks out there, the good news is that God is advancing his kingdom. And it's very exciting to be a part of his great commission. It's Sheila Zelensky. The Sheila Zelensky Show, the only show to give you the truth behind the headlines, prophecy, and the deeper things of God. Now, here is your host, End Time Watchwoman, Sheila Zelinsky. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Sheila Zelinsky Show. Thank you for tuning into the broadcast tonight, folks. I broadcast Monday to Friday, that's weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on Worldwide Christian Radio. And do not forget to sign up for my podcast. Go to weekendvigilante.com and click on that big pink button on the right-hand side that says Sheila's Podcast. Sign up and you can listen to all the podcasts and add me on social media. That's Facebook, Twitter, and sign up for my YouTube channel. All those media buttons are linked there at weekendvigilante.com. And also, join us every day in the chat. If you go to my website, there's a button towards the top right that says join us in the chat. You can join me in the chat every day during the show. My guest tonight is Rob Skiba. Rob is an award-winning filmmaker, researcher, and the best-selling author of several books, including Babylon Rising and The First Shall Be Last, An Archon Invasion, The Rise and Fall, and Return of the Nephilim. As an ancient Nephilim theorist, Rob brings a very unique and often unheard perspective to the UFO alien discussion, and as such, He has become an internationally recognized public speaker on these subjects, often appearing on paranormal and prophecy talk shows and as a keynote speaker at conferences all around the world. And it is such a pleasure to have him on the program for the first time. Rob, welcome to the show. Hi, Sheila. Thank you for having me on. So, Rob, you do an incredibly fascinating teaching on the Yahuwah Triangle, and I'd really like you to get into this for the listeners, so I'll just kind of give you the floor. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Well, yeah, this is a subject that uh, recently kind of got ramped up for me, because I I had this idea back in 2009 that would later become known, at least to me anyway, as the Yahuwah Triangle, and that was based on uh, Isaiah chapter 19. Uh, specifically verses 19 through uh, 25, where it talks about three very specific locations. Uh, in Isaiah 19, 
24 and 25, it says, In that day shall Israel be the third with Egypt and with Assyria, even a blessing in the midst of the land, whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, mine inheritance. So if you go on a map and just sort of put a pin in Egypt, Israel, and Assyria, or you know Babylon, let's just say, um, those form the three points of what I what I began to call the Yahuwah Triangle. Now, I have to address the name Yahuwah. Uh, that's based on the Tetragrammaton, yod heh vav heh the name of God. And, of course, a lot of our English Bibles just say the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, but if you look in, in the, any concordance, you'll see that that's covering up the name of God, yod heh vav heh And a lot of people have different ways of pronouncing that. Some pronounce it Yahweh. Uh, actually, a lot of people pronounce it Yahweh. King James renders it as Jehovah in a number of places. But some people say there is no J uh, in Hebrew, so it was Yahovah. And some say there was no W, so they say it was Yahovah. I ended up settling on Yahuwah. Uh, <laughs> well, we can kind of argue all day long the Tetragrammaton. I don't get really hung up on names, but Hebrew is a pretty deep language, whether there's consonants or vowels or whatever. It is really a kind of a deep language, though, isn't it? Oh, yeah, very much so. And the reason I settled on Yahuwah was because there's a website called BehindTheName.com, and it shows the Hebrew meanings of names and stuff like that. And when you look at the prophets, a lot of the prophets, like Jeremiah, his Hebrew name is Yermiyahu, or Elijah, Eliyahu, or Isaiah, Yasha Yahu. Right. And in... Most of these cases, if not all of them, whenever the name of God was incorporated into the name of the prophet, like in the name of Jeremiah, Yermiyahu, it means yod heh vav heh has uplifted. And it was always pronounced Yahu. So that's why I called it the Yahuwah Triangles. That's why I settled on the pronunciation of Yahuwah. But it also, just to be frank, uh, <laughs> rhymed with Bermuda. <laughs> Because we have the Bermuda Triangle, which, of course, everybody's familiar with, uh, where lots of weird and strange and freaky things happen. And so I, I, when I discovered this uh, Yahuwah Triangle, I thought, okay, well, it's just kind of a nice play uh, on words that I can you know, talk about. But anyway, uh, as I got to understand what's going on there in Isaiah chapter 19, and as I plotted out those three points, of course, it makes a triangle, um, I created a graphic back in 2009 that had some circles and, and arrows and lines and the compass uh, going off of Giza as the center point in Egypt. And uh, I created this graphic in 2000, 2009, didn't pay much attention to exactly what it all represented. I just, it was, I, I'm a visual person, so I try to put things down graphically whenever I when I when I'm studying, it helps me like create timelines and stuff like that. But I didn't do much with it back in 2009, and then right before the Feast of Tabernacles Sukkot last year, God was basically saying, "Okay, I want you to really elaborate on that. I showed you this in 2009, but now you got to really drill into it." And I kind of put it off, and he was like banging on my, you know, "Hello, McFly," and just really pressing on me, like, "I've got to do something. <laughs> I'm going to explode." So I did, and. Um, I got real intentional about it and, and sat down and, and started to try to flesh out what is this Yahuwah Triangle? Is it something real? And if, if so, what's it all about? And when I did that, going backing up a few verses in chapter 19 of Isaiah, uh, in chapter 19, verse 19 uh, and 20, it says, In that day shall there be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar at the border thereof to the Lord. And it shall be a sign and for a witness unto the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. 
And as I started to try to figure out what is this pillar and monument, and, and pillar is kind of a deceptive word in English. Uh, when we hear pillar, we think pole. But there are a number of other English translations that render that the word there instead of pillar, monument or even pyramid. And that was the path that I was going uh, on when I, when I looked into this verse. Okay, what is this monument that's in the middle of Egypt and on the border of Egypt? Which seems like a contradiction in, in terms, you know, on the border and, on, and in the middle. How does that work? Well, when you realize that the land of Egypt was divided in half, upper and lower Egypt, and it, the, the line kind of goes right across Giza, well, the best candidate for this pillar and altar and monument is the Great Pyramid of Giza. Um, now, there's a number of pyramids there, you know, the three big ones, and there's some little ones, and the, the three big ones line up with the, constel- the, the belt and the constellation of Orion, and a lot of people have done a ton of research on that. Um, but when I was looking uh, through Scripture and through extra-biblical texts and through the works of people like Josephus, it seemed to make the most sense to me that the, the best candidate for this Isaiah 19 monument is the Great Pyramid, and Josephus said that it would, whatever it was, uh, there was two altars or monuments or structures built in the pre-flood world based on a prophecy that Adam had that the world would be destroyed twice, once by fire and once by water. And so they were going to build a structure out of brick in case it was fire, the first one, uh, and of stone in case the first judgment was water. Well, of course, we know the first judgment was water. And Josephus said this thing is still in existence today in the land of Egypt. So, you know, all things considered, I'm going, it's got to be the Great Pyramid. And I'd kind of come to that conclusion really just on my own, looking at things. And in the process of researching that, I found there's actually a ton of people that have uh, done the same type of research and written books on it uh, going back hundreds of years. I mean, it seems like it has been a topic that many people have looked at. And so as I dove into what other researchers had to say, uh, I just got more and more fascinated by the Great Pyramid. I mean, it's an incredible structure. And just for the sake of time, just say, I've got a three rather lengthy blogs that I've written about this subject, so we can kind of move on from that unless you have questions, because uh, we only have an hour here. So, uh, I mean, I could talk about the Great Pyramid all day long, but um, if you go to my website, BabylonRisingBooks.com, forward slash T-Y-T for the Yahuwah Triangle, T-Y-T-Conference.html. And on that page, there's videos there uh, where I've done lengthy presentations on the subject, as well as the links to my blog. I'll, I'll stop there if you have any questions on the Great Pyramid. Otherwise, we'll, we can uh, move well, on. Well, I mean, it's, I guess it's really safe to say there's something very significant about that location. I've heard it sort of coined as ground zero. But what's a fascinating to me is being one of the wonders of the ancient world. It's, you know, mathematical, geological, astronomical, or meteorological. It's very interesting that those things really culminate with that monument, isn't it? Oh, it, it was one of the seven ancient wonders, you know, of the world, you know, the, but it's, it's the first and only remaining one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Yes, that's very interesting. And this thing's like almost 800 feet long, isn't it? Oh, it's huge. Um, and, you know, a lot of people think it was built some point during 2560 to 2540 BC, right. which uh, if my understanding of the flood is correct, the flood of Noah was about 2348 BC. So it's, it's a pre-flood structure. And Dr. Robert Schock 
he's a, I guess you'd say a secular archaeologist who has done a lot of research on the Sphinx and the Great Pyramid and that whole Giza Plateau area. And he says point blank, yeah, this, this place has been underwater. You know, there's lots wow. of lots of erosion, you know, and, and things of that nature. And you mentioned geographically, it is at the center of the geographical landmass of the planet. So if you take, you know, all the continents, you know, together, it's at the center of, of the landmass of the planet. Um, I, I mean, there's just a ton of stuff. It's 750 feet long at each base, uh, 781 feet tall. It is believed to have been the tallest man-made structure for about 4,000 years until we started building skyscrapers. And uh, if you've ever seen a, a graphic of the Great Pyramid compared to a jumbo jet and the Statue of Liberty, I mean, both the, the jet and the Statue of Liberty look like toys. <laughs> it's so, it's, it's just mind-bogglingly huge. I mean, this thing's just massive. You know, I always really laugh with L.A. Marzulli. We always say, you know, when they have andesite carvings, antediluvian structures, and these megalithics that are huge. I mean, these things are, they weigh an enormous amount. And I mean, these have angles that would make Newton salivate. How would you make that with a copper chisel, right? Well, I think we make the mistake, uh, a lot of us, of thinking the further back we go, the more primitive man was. But but that's an evolutionary mindset. Um, you yeah. know, we, we, today we're so smart we think we came from monkeys. So I mean, really, <laughs> how smart are we? Uh, but from a biblical worldview, uh, the further back you go, actually, the more intelligent we would be. And the megalithic structures, I think, testify to that. Now, certainly, there's something to be said for you know, fallen angels, watchers, you know, Nephilim, uh, you know, wisdom being incorporated into these things. Fair enough. But if we believe that Adam was created in the image and likeness of God, then he was an extremely smart individual. And uh, I think really you you don't start to see a decrease in wisdom and understanding and knowledge until uh, the Tower of Babel. You know, when they divide the languages up into 70 different people groups, uh, the book of Joshua says that there are about 600,000 men, that's not counting women and children, uh, on the earth at the time of the Tower of Babel. That went and they were divided into 70 different people groups because of 70 different languages that God confounded the languages. Well, I mean, if you're in the people group that had Einstein, you know, great, good for you. But, you know, if you're in the group with, uh, you know, Pee Wee Herman or something, I mean, well, you know, <laughs> you're kind of you're hosed, you know. Um, uh, and so, you, I mean, it's easy to see how we lost a lot at, at that one event. But uh, a lot of the megalithic structures predate that event. And a fair number probably uh, predate the flood. And uh, Josephus said that it was the house of Seth, Adam's third son, that was responsible for building these uh, structures that would survive the, the judgment. So it is my opinion that he, just like Moses was taken to the mountain and was shown basically a blueprint of something in heaven that he was to emulate here on earth, that being the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant and all that, that uh, in the book of Enoch, we see that Enoch saw a whole lot of very interesting things while he was up there and went on a little tour of heaven and earth. And it was said to have written 365 books, of which I believe we only have one currently available to us. Um, so I believe that he came, came back with the blueprint, probably passed on the understanding of what he had to, well, not probably, according to the book of Joshua, he did. He passed on his wisdom and understanding and, and the writings that he had to Methuselah. So you might think of Methuselah then as sort of the project manager uh, of the house of Seth that w would have been the architect of the Great Pyramid. 
it's interesting that a lot of people will be very quick to dismiss the apocryphal, extra-biblical writings, but the Bible makes reference after reference, and the Bible is the holy inspired word of God. So it's just interesting that all throughout those 66 books, you see these references to the apocrypha. Well, and that's my opinion on it. Uh, I'm thinking, well, okay, if we believe that the Bible is divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit and written by men, then under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, these authors were quoting from these books, uh, you know, sometimes directly, like in the case of Jude. He basically cut and pasted the paragraph into his <laughs> short little book, you know. Um, yeah, Joshua is mentioned twice by name and a number of times by inference. Uh, for instance, Paul is talking to Timothy about Janus and Jambres, the two individuals that opposed Moses in Pharaoh's court. Well, we don't get their names in the Torah and in, in, in you know the, the books of Moses. They don't. It just says that the magicians of uh, of Pharaoh. It, it, we don't have their names. So we we well, understand that Paul was a learned Pharisee who studied under Gamaliel. You know, he was a well-read individual, and he was well acquainted with these other books, and that's where he got the names, Janus and Jamrys, from the book of Joshua. So I'm thinking, well, if it's good enough for these guys to look at it, and it appears to be a Holy Spirit endorsement, I mean, I'd, I'd love it for the Holy Spirit to have told a couple of you know, <laughs> authors of Scripture to reference my books, you know, that'd be pretty good for sales, you know what I mean? I mean, <laughs> get the New York Times bestseller list, I mean, the Holy Spirit just inspired an author of Scripture to reference my book, how amazing would that be, you know? So that's kind of the way I look at it. It's like these were books that were in existence at the time that the canonized texts were written, and the authors and the audience of the authors of Scripture were well acquainted with these books. So, you know, I don't need to argue whether or not we should consider them to be Scripture. That's irrelevant to me. At, at the very least, they're Holy Spirit uh, endorsed. So I actually published a uh, book called Genesis and the Synchronized, Biblically Endorsed, Extra-Biblical Texts. And that volume includes the book of Genesis and the King James and the Septuagint side by side as a parallel uh, Bible. Wow, that sounds very interesting. It is because there's a number of significant differences that you find in the Septuagint versus the uh, King James. So it's, it's, it, I think it's very valuable to be able to compare uh, the two. And then it has the full uh, volumes of First Enoch, Joshua, and Jubilees all in one 500-page, 8.5 by 11 book. And so I call them... Uh, synchronized because they follow the same chronological order of events that we find in Genesis. I mean, they, they tell the same story in the same order of events uh, chronologically. I call them biblically endorsed because, like I just said, the Bible endorses these things by quoting from them and quoting uh, and, and referring to them by name and whatnot. And, of course, extra biblical because they're not in our Bible. So, you know, uh, Doug Hamp refers to them sort of as uh, ancient Hebrew commentary, and I think that's a good way of looking at it. I mean, we have our Bibles today, and we have, you know, Matthew Henry or you know, whatever your favorite commentary of choice is. Um, you know, when we, read, when we read our Bible, we have all these commentaries. Well, the Hebrews had commentaries also. <laughs> right. So, you know, and, and when you combine Genesis with Enoch, Joshua, and Jubilees, you get an incredibly detailed story of the ancient world from Adam right up until the, about the entrance into the Promised Land after the Exodus. So you can you can find all kinds of really cool stories in there that help us understand things. Um, and I mentioned Doug Hamp a minute ago. He actually before Doug Hamp, uh, there's another guy, Patrick Heron, who he had written a book called Nephilim and the Pyramid of the Apocalypse, and he takes a different position on 
who built it. He believes the Nephilim built it, which I actually don't really have a problem with that idea because I believe the Temple of Solomon was also built by Nephilim, according to uh, the Bible. First Kings tells you uh, who the labor workers were who built the temple. Right. And they're all the ites that the Israelites were repeatedly told to utterly destroy all through the Torah and the book of Joshua. And it even tells you that these were the ones that, uh, you know, Joshua and David failed to, to get out of the land. And they were the ones Solomon conscripted to build a temple. So, I, you know, when you look at megalithic structures around the world, it's easy to imagine like the, the big stone in Baalbek, that huge megalithic stone. It's, you know, the famous, one in Lebanon. Yeah, the people have seen, you know, the six-foot guy standing on one end of the <laughs> stone. Nobody knows how that thing was moved, right? So, you know, the, the ancient aliens crowd will tell you, you know, it was aliens and tractor beams or whatever, but, you know. <laughs> the you Anunnaki put, did it. <laughs> yeah, the Anunnaki. Well, if you just take a literal view of Scripture where it says in Amos chapter 2 that the Amorites got as tall as cedar trees, well, if you put a 36-foot tall, and, and they were as strong as the oak, as the oaks, well, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, when he was uh, heavily into bodybuilding and winning all his awards, he was known as the oak. Well, if you scale an Arnold-type person up to 36 feet tall, it's very easy to imagine how big stones like that were quarried, cut, and moved. You know, two guys the size of Arnold, you know, uh, muscular mass-wise at 36 feet tall could easily move it. You know, it's easy to imagine. So the idea that megalithic structures being built by Nephilim, you know, it, it works perfectly in my worldview and in, in my studies. So if they were the actual physical labor force that built the Great Pyramid, fine. I don't have a problem with that. But it seems to have been done under the direction of the House of Seth, according to Josephus. Now, uh, Patrick Heron believes that it was done to honor Lucifer, and this is where I, I differ with him. Um, I, I believe it, it may very likely be a representation, an earthly representation of the New Jerusalem, which he also believes. Patrick Heron also believes that it was a representation of the uh, New Jerusalem. He just he thinks that it was done by Lucifer, and that's where I differ with him. Patrick Heron was the first to introduce that idea to me because I always believed the New Jerusalem was a cube. And a lot of people out there who still believe that you know, when you read the description in Revelation of its height, depth, and width, that it's a cube. Well, those, those same dimensions also work for another shape besides a, a, a box. It works for a pyramid as well. And Patrick Heron pointed that out. And he was the first to get me thinking along those lines. But Doug Hamp was really the one that sort of pushed me over the edge on that with uh, some of his teachings. And uh, now I, 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 I'm in agreement with both of those gentlemen and a number of other people that uh, New Jerusalem is likely in the shape of a pyramid. And it's interesting that the pyramid itself originally had 144,000 highly polished limestone pieces on a, as a covering. Hmm, where have we heard that number before? <laughs> you know. <laughs> and wasn't it said that you could see this polished limestone from the moon? Oh, absolutely. If the sun hit it the right way, that you could see it from the moon, that it was like a star sitting on the planet. So, I mean, that's, that's really interesting to me. And it's also supposed to be made of 2.3 million stones. And that's about the same number as you always hear scholars say about 2 million people left Egypt in the time of the Exodus. So just a lot of really interesting coincidences, let me put it that way, <laughs> regarding the people of God and, uh, and the Great Pyramid. So, you know, I just put it out there for people to consider. But the uh, second part of my Yahuwah Triangle series deals with uh, finding the Garden of Eden. And a lot of researchers have 
you know, made an attempt to try to find where the garden was originally located. Uh, and I found that there's basically five locations that most people point to. One is the Persian Gulf, where um, the Euphrates and the Tigris kind of meet right there in Kuwait, right in that area. They say that the Garden of Eden may have become submerged under the Persian Gulf. Uh, another location is in Turkey, another in the land that we call Israel today, and another in the Gulf of Aden, because uh, linguistically they say that Aden traces back to Eden. And, uh, and most recently, the work of Stan Deo, uh, he has put forth the idea that the Garden of Eden, he believes, uh, was in Tanzania. Right. You know, I have for a long, long time believed that the Garden of Eden was in the land we now call Israel. But when I saw Standeo's research, I decided to go back and dig into some of my old research that I'd done years and years ago uh, that gave me the conclusion that it was in the land of Israel. And, you know, Stan's got some interesting reasons for why he believes what he, what he believes. I'll let people just go ahead and do a Google search on, on that, and they can watch presentations for themselves. I'm just going to say I disagree with him, um, at least on this point. He's got a lot of other great research that I do agree with, but in this particular case, I don't agree with that. When you go on a quest to try to find the Garden of Eden, the first thing most people do is uh, look for the rivers, you know, because we are given in, in the book of Genesis a description of, you know, the, the rivers that were in and around the garden, right? So we have the, uh, the Pison River that uh, is named as the first one in Genesis 2.11. Uh, it's, it's said to have compassed the land of Hivala where there was gold. And this is what I find interesting. Interesting, It says the gold of that land is good. There is bdellium and onyx stone there. So the first thing you have to notice is that Moses is writing in present tense. Because a lot of people say, well, you know, the garden was before the flood, and the flood would have messed up everything, so there's no way anybody could have known where the garden was after the flood. Well, I would beg to differ on that because uh, while we understand Scripture to have been divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit, the Torah, I think, stands a little bit above that because it said that Moses spoke with God face to face as one speaks with a friend. So in this case, you have dictation. And not to cast any doubt or anything on inspiration, but I think dictation is a step above inspiration. <laughs> yeah. you, know, you know, God's just kind of like, okay, you got your quill ready <laughs> there, uh, Moses, in the beginning. Are you getting this now? Uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, he's sitting across from him, you know. So, and he's writing in present tense about 850 years after the flood. So when you go back and look at the description in Genesis 2, verses 10 through 14, everything's written in a, in a, in a tense that everybody who is, would listen to it would do, oh yeah, okay, we know what that is. You know? So Pison's going through Havala where there is gold. The, the Gihon is the second river mentioned in verse 13, and it compasses the whole land of Ethiopia. And this is where I, I really differ from Standeo, because if you look at where he has the Gihon, he's got it going around the continent or the country of India. And I'm like, uh, okay. I mean, he does all kinds of stuff with the expanding earth, and which, which I understand and, and can agree with, you know, assuming we're on a globe, that it, 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 that it expanded. I understand where he's going with that, but uh, you know, I mean, the fact he's got it going around India instead of the Horn of Africa and Ethiopia, I'm kind of right. like, really, dude, why, why'd you do that? You know, I mean, it tells you point blank that Gion goes around the land of Ethiopia, verse 13. The third river is the Hittikel, which today a lot of people believe uh, Hittikel was what the Tigris used to be known as. And the other one is Euphrates, which 
the Hittikel and the Euphrates are both actually mentioned a number of times in Scripture. You know, Daniel uh, is by the Hittikel when he gets some of his prophecies and stuff, you know, visions and whatnot. Right. And uh, Euphrates is mentioned a number of times, and of course, prophetically, we know it plays a, a role in the end times in the book of Revelation. Yes. So, okay, you got your four rivers there, and to me, when you're looking at the locations that most people will point to, number one being the, the Persian Gulf, uh, well, you got the Euphrates and Tigris or Hittichel right there, still in existence today. And if you go on Google Earth, you can still see the Pison. Now, Pison is a uh, is no is no longer a river; it's dried up. But you can see that what was a very large dry river. It's a dry riverbed. You know what was a very large river went right through Saudi Arabia, and it 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 connects with the Persian Gulf right about the same area as uh, Euphrates. So if you go on Google Earth to where the Euphrates enters the Persian Gulf in, in Kuwait there and look to just to the west of that, you'll start to see going west-southwest a dry riverbed that you can see even to this day. It looks like it connects with the, or may have connected at one time with the uh, Red Sea. I mean, granted, the world looked uh, radically different probably than it did before the flood. You know, you got to remember that Shemhem and Japheth, the, the three sons of Noah, lived almost 100 years before the flood. Yes. You know, they, they understood the pre-flood world quite well. So when the ark finally set down, you know, they probably started looking for familiar territory. You know, where, where how far did we drift? You know, <laughs> you know, and as they started looking around, you know, as they were, you know, spreading out, they, and apparently they went out together because the whole world was gathered together in the land of Shinar by the time you get to Genesis 11. So, you know, they must have migrated together, kind of just kind of looking around to see familiar places. And I think there's good reason to believe that they ended up back in, in that area um, because there was still some things that probably looked familiar to them. And some scholars believe that he built the Tower of Babel on top of a previous ancient structure that may have been there. So, and what's also interesting in the Book of Jubilees is a character that's omitted from the Table of Nations in the King James Version, but is still there in the Septuagint. This is another one of those examples I was saying you see some differences. Our facts said, uh, son of Shem, had a son uh, named Canaam, and uh, he was said to have found, I think it's in Jubilees chapter 8, if I remember the address right, he is said to have found writings from the pre-flood world of the Watchers. And it said he sinned because of it and, hand, and, and hid it away from, uh, from Noah. Well, ancient Jewish writings suggest that Ham might have found one of those books, maybe the Book of Joshua, because it talks about they found writings of the Watchers, possibly regarding the reestablishment of what the Watchers were doing there. I mean, Ham's grandchildren built Babylon and the Egyptian Empire, so, you know, Nimrod wanted to build something other than what God wanted in the earth, perhaps? This is just my theory. I can't prove this. But uh, being that Canaam, it, and it's interesting the King James omits him, he's in the Septuagint. Yeah. <laughs> Jubilees talks about him, because, you know, we know that the Messiah comes through the line of Shem, right? So, you know, it, it is interesting that here's a guy who does something apparently wrong, and for whatever reason they decided, okay, let's pull him out of the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> we we don't want to look at him, but he would have been a first cousin to Nimrod, right? Because Ham had you know Cush, and uh, Cush had Nimrod, so you know Ham, Cush, Nimrod, Shem, Arphaxad, Canaan. You know they're they're first cousins. 
And there's no indication that I could see that Nimrod was born a giant or, or an offspring or a Giborim, uh, a, a Nephilim. Um, but it says that he began to become one. So when you look at Canaan, Ham's son Canaan, all the giants come from him. You know, that we see in the Bible. The Philistines to, mentioned 200 times. The Amorites mentioned 80, over 80 times. Um, you know, all the ites that we read about that the Israelites were told to utterly destroy over and over again are the ites that were born to Canaan in the Table of Nations, Genesis 10, 6 through 20. So, you know, I, ca- I can imagine Nimrod looking over at his other first cousins from the line of Canaan uh, growing really big and powerful and strong and saying, you know, I want to be like that. You know, <laughs> meanwhile, his other first cousin through the line of Shem finds this writing of the watchers and whatever is on it, you know, we don't know. We can only speculate. But being that they were first cousins in close proximity to each other, all gathered together in the land of Shinar, I think it's a reasonable assumption. And I admit that it's an assumption that they could have collaborated and figured something out. And genetically, it appears that Nimrod did something to himself, uh, probably sexually, because the word that's used for began there has a sexual connotation to it. It's used elsewhere for like prostitution and things like that and defilement. So through some sort of sexual defilement, Nimrod began to become a Gaborim. Now, again, the Septuagint is interesting because the Hebrew scholars that translated their Hebrew text into Greek, they, they had the benefit of understanding their, not only their language, but their cultural history. Right. And Gaborim is, a, is kind of a generic word. I mean, it's a word that can mean strong, powerful, mighty man, you know, warrior, but it can also mean giant. Yet the same word is used for David's mighty men, which we know were not Nephilim. They were busy killing Nephilim. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so this is where the Septuagint comes in really handy because knowing the cultural history and how to apply the word, they applied the word tondinatos in the Greek for Nimrod in Genesis 10, 8, and 9. Excuse me, Tone Dinatone is the one that they, they used for the David's Mighty Men, sorry. David's Mighty Men, uh, they use the Greek word Tone Dinatone or Tone Dinatos, meaning, you know, strong, powerful guy. But for Nimrod in Genesis 10, 8, 9, they chose a different Greek word, Gigantis, for we, for the word we, from which we get giant or gigantic. So they clearly understood the difference and how to apply the same exact Hebrew word in two different ways, depending on the context. So uh, Nimrod did something to himself to make himself into a giant. And he also seemed to have been aware of something because this Tower of Babel thing, like you, you kind of mentioned earlier, I, I do believe it was an interdimensional portal, a stargate, if you will, that he was trying to create in order to rend the veil between this realm and that of the heavenly realm. It says whose top might reach into heaven. And then the Joshua account it goes into a lot more detail, telling you that there was basically three different uh, groups of people that had an assignment once they f- finished the tower. And one was basically to go in there and assault the angels and try to you know, kill the angels off. Another was to go take over the throne room. And the other was to set up their gods, and, and presumably Nimrod, uh, after they kill God, uh, set him up on the throne. So, I mean, this was a hardcore endeavor. And what really intrigues me about that whole thing is in Genesis, it says, you know, God goes down, checks out what they're doing and says, now whatever they imagined to do would not be restrained from them. Well, that's an extraordinary statement. Now, I don't believe could have killed God. I I certainly don't believe that that is possible, but I do believe that at least their attempt to uh, rent 
this the, the, the veil between our realm and, and the heavenly realm w- apparently was theoretically possible. For well, what's interesting, too, is that as in the days of Jared was known, Bashan was also known for ill repute and evil. And coincidentally, you know, you were talking a minute ago about the rumblings in the epicenter of the Middle East. Well, Bashan today is right smack dab in that sort of epicenter for a great territorial battle. So it's just really interesting. You go from Bashan near Mount Hermon, and then, of course, these angels. That was a really key area as well, wasn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, in the days of Jared, 200 Watcher-class angels landed on Mount Hermon, and and that's in southern Lebanon, just north of the land we call Israel today. And you're right. You know, it's interesting. The Golan Heights... Uh, the West Bank and Gaza is where we still see a lot of turmoil yeah. over there. Well, those are the three locations that it said Joshua failed to you know, eradicate the, the uh, Nephilim. He failed to get them out. And David and his mighty men did a good job of picking up where Joshua left off hundreds of years earlier. Uh, but the, he didn't get them all either because, like I said, when you get to the time of Solomon, Solomon's conscripting these guys to, as labor force. Right. So, you know, clearly there's been a, a tainted bloodline that has maintained itself in and around that area, uh, even to this day. Uh, going back to the Garden of Eden, though, we're missing one river. Pison, Euphrates, and Tigris all kind of converge right in there, right around Kuwait. But it's Gion that throws the whole thing out of whack, because Gion's way o- over on the other side and going all the way down to Ethiopia. So that's what kind of steered my attention away from the usual assumption that the Garden of Eden was over in the Persian Gulf area. And when you look up the Gion in the, uh, in the scriptures, you'll see that it, it became submerged probably after the flood. Uh, it, it somehow got forced underground. And it was the, a spring that actually went under the temple and was used uh, for a variety of, of activities and reasons in the land of Israel, um, not the least of which cleansing the temple blood, you know, all, all those sacrifices. I mean, that was a bloody place, you know, some of, especially during some of the feasts and whatnot. So, um, you know, they had the, they, they had an aqueduct system that would wash it all out. Well, it was uh, by the river Gihon that did that. And actually Solomon was anointed king in the Gihon. And when you read about the uh, situation where he was anointed king, you see that he was led down to the Gihon. And then after he was made king, he was led up from the Gihon. So there's just a bunch of references to the Gihon River as uh, being submerged. And also the fact that the Gihon uh, went under the temple calls in question what we now call the Temple Mount, because the Gihon Spring doesn't go under the Temple Mount. It goes under the city of David. And uh, when I was looking at that, I'm going, wait a minute, if that's true, then the Temple Mount's not the Temple Mount, and all this hubbub and fuss and, you know, how many practically wars and, you know, <laughs> how much trouble have we had because of that Temple Mount, and it may not even be the Temple Mount. And, and, if, and if it's true that it's not the Temple Mount, then it's the Fortress Antonia, and that wall that everybody's bowing down to and putting prayers in is Rome. Everybody's bowing to Rome and praying to Rome. Uh, there's a guy, Ernst Martin, who had written a book on this whole subject, The Temples That Jerusalem Forgot. And another guy, uh, Bob Cornuke, has recently published a book uh, kind of picking up where Martin left off, it, saying, you know what, this is the biggest archaeological blunder of all time. This Temple Mount has nothing to do with the temple. It was a Roman fortress garrison that was uh, set up there. And, you know, Jesus said not one stone would be left on top of another. And 
sure enough, you know, there's not in the city of David. Uh, of course, you got this big wall that everybody's bowing down down to. <laughs> so what do you do with that? You know, and and then Chuck Missler got on that same page and was endorsing the work of Bob Cornuke. So in, in my presentation, I show a video clip uh, talking about the temples at Jerusalem forgot from Ernst. Ernst Martin, and also what Bob Cornuck has to say, and Chuck Missler as well. So, at least in my mind, I'm fully convinced that what we call the Temple Mount has nothing to do with the Temple. Uh, so, if anything gets built on that thing, it's not of God. <laughs> you know, interesting. It is extraordinarily interesting. You know, again, we're going through a lot of this really quickly here. I, I covered in a lot more depth in my uh, video presentations and in the blogs I wrote on this, uh, so people could check that out as well. You know, I go through a lot of what I consider pretty solid proof for the garden uh, actually being in the land that we now call Israel. And, and uh, if that's true, as I got a little further into it, I realized that Abraham's the key to helping us to confirm all that and also to finding where the um, two trees were. Now, as far as scripture that confirms Israel as the land of the Garden of Eden, I would suggest people check out Genesis 13, 9 through 12, where Lot you know, and Abraham had to split up because they weren't getting along so well, well you know, their, their flocks and all that were getting too large for, you know, the two of them to be together. And he's looking out over the Jordan and he says, this is like the Garden of Eden, the Garden of the Lord. So there's one reference right there. Joel chapter two, verses one through three refers to the land of Zion as the Garden of Eden. Um, Ezekiel 36, verse 22, as well as 33 through 35 talks about Israel and the Garden of Eden. Um, Isaiah 51.3, also uh, the wilderness of Zion being made like the garden of the Lord. So there's just a lot of what I would consider confirming witnesses in the scriptures telling you point blank that that's the reason why this tiny little sliver of land is so important. Because it's the original place where God fellowshiped with, with Adam and Eve, walked with them together in the garden, had fellowship with them, and that fellowship was broken and so, of course, that resulted in, because of the sin of the first Adam, the second Adam, Yeshua, had to come and pay the price for that sin, and he did so in the same location, <laughs> in the garden. And that's why we're going back there. You know, there's a reason why, you know, New Jerusalem and all that, we're, we're going back there. So, right, right. You know, to me, that just nullifies all the other arguments and, and really argues in favor of the garden being in that location. But then when I followed, you know, because Abr Abram... Uh, grew up in Nimrod territory in Ur of the Chaldees. And uh, Joshua gives you a lot of information on this. Uh, about, In fact, it, it, his name Abram means blessed prince. And uh, Terah, his father, was the chief idol uh, maker in the land of Nimrod. Nimrod was emperor of the world at the time. And Terah was his one of his right-hand men who was in charge of making all the false gods that Nimrod wanted everybody to worship. And Nimrod's born in 1908 AM, or year since creation, 1908. But he's made king of the world in 1948 AM, which I thought was really interesting when you consider 1948 AD, when a land we, that's calling itself Israel uh, set itself up. But they didn't set itself up as a godly nation. They set itself up as a Zionist nation under the house of Rothschild, with the uh, sanction of the, you know, with the um, approval of the United Nations. And, you know, everything you look at what these guys are doing, they, they're not following the Torah. They're not following Leviticus 18 or Leviticus 26. Now, of course, there is a remnant. There are people in the land who are following the Torah. But I'm saying as a nation, 
they didn't set themselves up as a nation worshiping Yahuwah. They set themselves up as a secular nation. And they set up, uh, th there's uh, a statue of Nimrod outside the Hebrew University, and the Rothschild-funded Supreme Court has Freemasonic symbols all over the place, including a pyramid with an all-seeing eye-looking thing on the top of it. I do talk about it in my presentation, but... Um, yeah, I just think we as Christians need to be very careful about what we are supporting um, and look into it because a lot of the things that we kind of blindly support really don't have it much to do with God or the Bible or the things <laughs> that we believe in. So while I do support the people of Israel as in the house of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I myself personally can't support a Zionist political agenda. Traditional Christianity was very anti-Semitic, really, wasn't it? Well, and, and it is still today. Uh, that's a whole other subject. That's a whole other show. <laughs> it really is a whole other show. I mean, because they they will never admit it, and they probably aren't even aware of it. But when you look at some of the doctrines that are taught in the Christian Church today, it's very anti-Semitic. Yes, yes. Um, I mean, number one, and the, uh, you know, I apologize if this gets too controversial, but uh, to, in my mind, the preacher rapture ideology is anti-Semitic, and I grew up in that environment, believed it for 40 years, uh, and taught it myself. But when you really break it down, Christians are like, you know what, you know, we, are in the, you know, we have the favor of God for this dispensation of grace for the last 2,000 years, but then we're going to get raptured out of here, church is going to get raptured out of here, and then God's going to beat the snot out of his bride, Israel, yeah, yeah, for seven yeah. years, and uh, then we all get to come back and play happy again. And I'm like, so you've basically painted God as a wife beater, and all of us who are, are certainly anything but righteous and holy, uh, other than by the blood of Christ. I mean, the blood of Christ makes us righteous and holy, but uh, you know, by and large, Christians are just as bad in many cases as anybody else. I mean, we have the same divorce rates. You know, Christians have abortions. I mean, we do all the things we blame everybody else and, and accuse everybody else of doing. Christians do that stuff too. You know. Well, uh, I always say the only thing left behind in the Left Behind series was the Bible. So that's well, another. Yeah. Right, well, okay, so we're in agreement on that. Um, it, I mean, it's a very anti-Semitic uh, worldview, even though they, they'll say they support Israel and they love Israel, but, I mean, all of their support is going towards Zionism, uh, political Zionism. Yes. And um, this whole Rothschild thing. So Well, and people don't understand that when they say, oh, I stand with Israel, they don't even really understand that. And the, I mean, the Talmud, the early book of the Jews, the wisdom of the rabbis is, if you really look at this 38 volumes of the doctrines of men, it's quite stunning. What's If, if Christians read that, they wouldn't be big supporters of the Talmud. No. Uh, yeah. I mean, first of all, the Torah says don't add to or subtract from the Torah. So what do you have? You have library shelves worth of the Talmud, which is all addition to the Torah. Right. They call it a fence around the Torah. Um, and it's kind of interesting if you've ever kind of seen how some of these uh, rabbinic writings are. You'll have a little square in the middle that's a portion of the Torah. And then all around it are the comments of various rabbis over the years, you know. Looking at it, and they've, you know, we've done the same thing in Christianity, though. I mean, if you look at, um, like, the Schofield Reference Bible, for instance, I mean, which is something that I was raised on, you know, Schofield Reference King James Bible, you know, a lot of seminary students and stuff will have Bibles like that. They'll treat the writings of Schofield or other commentaries almost to the same level as Scripture itself. Absolutely. 
So they've basically put a lot of faith and created entire doctrines based on commentary, not on the word itself, which is exactly what the Jews did. They just had longer to do it than we did, you know. <laughs> well, but, I actually had a, a a rabbi, an Orthodox rabbi, and another like a pretty conservative rabbi basically say to me, you know, we don't really believe in the whole Adam and Eve and the creation thing and the whole we don't really believe in the Tower of Babel and don't believe in animal sacrifices or really anything. So I thought, what do you believe then if you don't <laughs> believe the Torah? <laughs> I, I know. I, it's See, I'm, I'm at a place in my life right now and in my walk with God that I just want to throw off all the doctrines of men and start over mm. and, and have been in this mode for the last five years. As I started looking at things for myself and comparing it to what I have been taught, my whole life to believe, I, you know, I started throwing stuff out left and right going, well, that ain't right. That ain't right. That ain't right. First John two says you have no need of a teacher that the Holy spirit is your teacher yes. and the Holy spirit leads you to all truth. So, you know, not, that's not to say that we can't look at co commentary and stuff. I mean, there's certainly, you know, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Um, a lot of people do have very good insights, but just be careful on what you're basing your, your belief system on, you know, um, Check, we're supposed to test the spirits and see whether they be of God. We're supposed to be Bereans and searching the scriptures daily to see if these things be true. You know, uh, when Paul started going through town and, and talking to people, you know, some of them just believed him. But like the Bereans said, you know, I'm going to check this guy out. You know, does what he said, is what he is saying, does it line up with the scriptures? And oh, by the way, when, when you read that scriptures, they didn't have the New Testament. So <laughs> you can throw out any idea of the New Testament being the scriptures that are being referred to in the scriptures. <laughs> the scriptures being referred to in the scriptures were the Torah, the, the writings of the prophets and the Psalms. That's what you, it, it, because the New Testament wasn't written until much later. So while the, pro, while the apostles were out doing their thing, telling everybody about Yeshua, they weren't reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and the epistles of Paul to confirm what these guys were saying. That's yeah, exactly. That's, that's circular reasoning, you know. They're saying, okay, is what this guy, does this guy, is what he's saying, does it match up with what we are told to consult as our source for truth? And so they were going back to Torah, which uh, is interesting on Luke 24, when Yeshua is walking on the road to Emmaus and the guys don't recognize him, it says he began with Moses and the prophets to illustrate who he was. And I looked at that back in, 2009, and I was struck by that because I'd already spent quite a bit of time in the Torah because that's where you go to try to figure out the Nephilim and Nimrod. I mean, that's where all the stories are, you know. So I had already spent a lot of time, and it was still at that time spending a, quite a bit of uh, time daily in the Torah doing my research on Nimrod and the Nephilim. But while I'm in there looking for those things, of course, the Lord's showing me all kinds of other stuff, you know, <laughs> saying, oh, yeah, check this out. Check this out. And when I, around that same time, read Luke 24, I'm going, wait a minute. Everything I, like if somebody asked me to tell them about Jesus or Yeshua, I, I would, like most Christians, would go to the Gospels and the Epistles. But yet, at the time that the Gospels and the Epistles were written, they didn't do that. <laughs> they went to the Torah and the prophets. Exactly. Like, just like Yeshua did. So I'm going, wow, you know, other than Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22, I, I couldn't make a big, solid case for who my Savior was from the Old Testament at that point in my life. And I thought, okay, Lord, I'm going to just kind of, I love the New Testament. I absolutely love it and am forever grateful for it, but I'm just going to push it over to the side for a little while. I want you to show me what you showed the guys on the road to Emmaus. Wow. You know, that's a good way to just 
sit down and dig in and just get revelation from the Holy Spirit. Well, let me tell you, and I'll just, anybody listening, I challenge you, just do that. If you can't build a case for your Savior that you say you believe in the same way the Bereans did, then, then we don't really know him. You know, for most of my life, I got saved at age seven, grew up in a Baptist environment. My dad was a preacher when I was a kid. I was a PK. Um, you used to go around saying, we're New Testament Bible-believing Christians. Well, and that's great. That's wonderful. But that's like going to Barnes & Noble and buying the, the New York Times best-selling novel of all time ever written and skipping three-quarters of the book and start reading from the last 25% and thinking you have a clue who the characters are, what their motivation is, or what they're doing and why they're doing it. Mm. And I kind of like the way Doug Hamp refers to it. He says, the New Testament is commentary on the Old Testament. Nice. I like that. <laughs> yeah, I like that too. When he said that, I was like, dude, you know, I think you're absolutely right. Because you know, these guys, nobody, nobody was sitting around saying, hey, we got to write a Bible. You, there's nobody, never, you won't find anywhere in the Bible where God ever tells anybody in the Bible to make a Bible. Hmm, that's good. Well, when you look at the 66 books written by 40 some authors over the span of 1400 years. I mean, it's pretty incredible cumulatively how succinct it is, isn't it? Yeah, it's amazing. Over 40 authors, about 1400 years uh, time period. But if we define a Bible as a collection of scripture, you know, uh, because that's what it is, you know, it's written over by multiple authors over a long period of time that somebody assembled together and called it a Bible. Um, but the only Holy Spirit-inspired collection of scriptures that were ever authorized in the Bible is the Torah, the, the five books of Moses, as a collection of scripture put together as one, you know, one package. Right. So if we define Bible as a collection of scripture, then the only divinely inspired Bible uh, in the Bible is the five books of Moses. In other words, everybody else, all the prophets and the writers in the New Testament were using the Torah as their Bible. That was the Bible that they used. So when, when Isaiah is writing, you know, all of the prophets, I mean, how many of the prophets, they're all talking about people, hey, we have gone away from the law of God. We got to get back to it. <laughs> well, it's not like Daniel was reading from the book of Daniel. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and you know, you'll notice that all the great people in the Bible, they, they weren't walking around with scrolls under their arms like we walk around with the Bible under our arms. You know, uh, Abraham didn't have a Bible. Uh, you know, Moses, Noah, none of these guys had a Bible, you know, Daniel. I mean, they could go to a place and read scrolls, sure, sure. But the point is, Paul wasn't sitting in prison saying, wow, you know, they tell me that I got to write two-thirds of this thing they're going to call the New Testament. A guard, a guard, can you give me some parchment and a feather? And, you know, he, he wasn't thinking that way. He was writing to a letter to his converts, you know, his disciples, you know, people like Timothy, you know. And, and his church plants saying, hey, guys, I hear you having some trouble there in Corinth. You know, let me tell you, you know, how to deal with that. You know, we just have the enormous privilege of eavesdropping in on these conversations. Um, but th their goal wasn't to sit down and write a Bible and to limit it to 66 books. I know people get all up in arms about that. But, I mean, King James shipped with 80 books and actually came with an edict saying if you remove the 14 books that we now call the Apocrypha or any other books, then it's a minimum of one year in prison. Was that so, the 1611? Yeah. The 1611, yeah. Right, that's, right. For it's me, kind I'm, of interesting they just kind of threw out all those apocryphal writings. I just find that very interesting. Well, I do too, because a lot of these writings have a, a lot of very valuable information. And like Enoch, the, um, you know, the Ethiopians still have it in their Bible today. So while we can go around saying, well, it's not in our Bible, so, well, you're right. It's not in our Protestant Bible that we bought at the Christian bookstore. But the 
Ethiopians still have it in their Bible and have, you know, for centuries, you know, as well as the Book of Jubilees and others. But there, uh, the Book of Enoch, the first two verses of the first chapter says, it's not for this generation, but for a remote future generation that will live in the day of tribulation. Yes. Well, hello. I mean, maybe that's why it was found in 1948, <laughs> 1947, 40, you know, the whole time period where the, all kinds of freaky things are happening. You got Roswell, you got, you know, Israel proclaiming itself a nation and, you know, all kinds of stuff going on at the same time the Dead Sea Scrolls pop up. It's kind of an interesting coincidence that in May of 1948, the very day before the expiration of the British mandate, they established the Jewish state to be known as the state of Israel. Very coincidental. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think it's all. Somebody once told me that coincidence is just God being anonymous. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't think it's a coincidence that all these things pop up. And look, before somebody just grabs a soundbite and says Rob Skiba doesn't believe the Bible because somebody's bound to do that based on what I just said before. Um, look, I believe the Bible and I love the Bible. You know, I, I have no problem with the sixty-six books. They are wonderful, awesome, and I live my life by them and study it daily, uh, and have since I was seven years old. And, and I happen to find value in the other books, and I'll just leave it at that. I think they're, they're valuable for information because the people in the Bible thought the same way. So um, my quest, though, for understanding my Messiah, my Savior, was to go back and, and I just started praying, Lord, show me Yeshua the same way Yeshua showed the men on the road to Emmaus. And when I did that, and I've been studying the Torah now for uh, going on six years, uh, he's all over it. <laughs> I mean, he's everywhere in that thing. I'm like, wow, this yeah. is just absolutely blowing my mind. Incredibly amazing how he's everywhere. And we've lost that in what I call pagan Christianity. And what I mean by that is, you know, those who've thrown out the Sabbath and think Sunday replaced the Sabbath and are doing Christmas and Easter and think those have anything to do with our Messiah and dismissing the feasts of God which it says in Leviticus 23, 1 through 4, that these are the feasts of yod heh vav -Heh, not the feasts of the Jews. And when you understand that they're his feasts and they understand that they are all about our Savior and they're a lot of fun, well, it, it's actually a good deal. I, I throw out, I call Christmas and Easter the beast feasts. <laughs> you know, I've tossed out two and I've got eight. You know, that's a good deal. That's throw a good swap. Yeah, you get the seven appointed times plus the Sabbath. You, I mean, toss out two, get eight. I mean, that's a good deal no matter how you look at it. That's a very good deal. Well, we're running out of time, Rob, and i really like you to come back for a part two to really flesh this whole topic out a little bit more. And again, your writing is just incredibly astute. I really encourage people to go to your website, and I have a link there on the bio for today's show, but incredible work. I mean, I'm just so absolutely impressed with your work, especially your books. And I really encourage people to pick up. You've got a great deal on right now for a package of your books. Tell our listeners about that. Yeah, actually, there's a whole bunch of um, package deals we still have going right now. If you go to our website, BabylonRisingBooks.com, and if you click on the store tab, you'll see uh, it says special offers and package deals. And if you click on that, uh, picture right there. You'll see we've got a whole bunch of stuff going. Uh, the best deal that we have right now is the what I call the red pill super all-in-one package, and that's pretty much everything uh, for $165. You actually save over $100 uh, if you were to buy them all separately. Yeah, I was eyeing up that one actually earlier today myself. 
Yeah, I, I learned that trick from Tom Horn too. Tom so. Horn is definitely the master of the package deal over at Defenders. Oh, well, Rob, yeah. I really highly recommend your work. Again, very prolific writer, and I really thank you for coming on the show. And I do hope that you come back and see us soon and really get into this topic a little more. We kind of jumped all over the place, but I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I enjoyed it too. I'd love to come back again and, and tell you where I believe the scriptures tell us where the two trees were. Pretty cool stuff. That sounds very exciting. Well, do come back and do that, Rob. Sounds good. Thanks, Rob. Folks, that was the amazing, brilliant Rob Skiba. What a pleasure to have him on the show today. His information is linked there at weekendvigilante.com. And tomorrow, we have a fantastic show. We have Patrick Wood, Technocracy Rising, And then we have Chuck and Tim Baldwin coming on Friday. It's going to be a great show. Thank you so much for tuning into the program, folks, tonight. Good night and God bless.